My name's Gabriel Stone. Thanks so much for joining us in person and online. Uh, just a couple of announcements. Um, Journey Young Adults, we're going to be meeting in uh, the Hooler Hotel tomorrow at 7 p.m. Uh, so make sure you're there. As well as Renew, we still have a couple spots available. 
Um, so please get your forms in. Uh, space is limited, so um, yeah, uh, it's gonna be a great time. If you guys want more information of just like what goes down and how the weekend is, you're more than welcome to come speak to myself or Talia or even Pastor Raj after the service and we can just give you more information. Um, I'm just going to read a scripture and then, and then we'll pray and then Talia will lead us in worship. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. We welcome you into this space, Lord. We welcome you into the living rooms or the cars or wherever people are listening to this. Uh, we just ask for your presence here, God. We do not take this meeting for granted. Uh, we ask that you will open our hearts to what Pastor Raja has to say. We ask that you will change us into the disciples you call us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. too tall there. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. It is so nice to see your beautiful faces in person and not just on Facebook and Instagram. Um, stand with us. We're going to sing this morning. We're going to worship. It's been a while for us, so if you can help us out by singing, that'd be awesome. Uh, we're going to do some ones we've done before, so sing along with us. He's coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down, and every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's Stop the Lord Almighty. I 
singing together in person. I'm so excited. I can't stop saying how excited I am. <laughs> Let's keep singing. Your love is devoted like a ring of solid gold, like a vow that is tested like a covenant of old your love is enduring through the winter rain and beyond the horizon with mercy for today faithful you have been and faithful you will be you pledge yourself to me and it's why I sing your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. You father the orphan kindness makes us whole and you shoulder our weakness and your strength becomes our own you're making me like you clothing me in white bringing beauty from ashes for you will have your bride free of all her guilt and rid of all her shame and known by her true name and it's why I sing your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will 
ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, you will be praised, and you will be praised with angels and saints we sing. With angels and saints we sing, worthy are you, Lord, and you will be praised, you will be praised. With angels and saints we sing, worthy are you, Lord, and you will be praised, you will be praised. With angels and saints we sing, Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. Bring the wine out of me. 
We just thank you. We thank you for already showing up so powerfully this morning, God. We pray that you would make us your vessels, God, that we would be what you want us to be, God, that you would show us the way that we would walk uh, in your light and in your way for us, God. Uh, we thank you for every single person who's walked through these doors this morning. They're not here by accident, God. Uh, we pray for everyone who's watching online this morning as well, God. Again, they haven't tuned in by accident. Uh, we just pray that each one of us would have a real encounter with you this morning. We love you. In your name, amen. You can have a seat. here. There we go. Uh, it's so nice to see all of you. I don't know how many of you felt this morning, but this morning as I was getting ready, I was feeling like I forgot something. It's been so long. Like, my morning was basically getting up from bed and walking down to the basement, and I'm good to go, right? This morning, I'm like, what do I need to do to actually go to church again? So it was one of those things where like, ah, I haven't figured it out yet. So thank you for all for coming this morning, and thank you for all for coming that are able to be here in spite of in spite of everything that could, that could possibly be going on. And for those of you who are tuning in uh, online, we've got a, kind of a larger group this morning online. I want to welcome you as well, too. And digitally, you're with us this morning as well. Well, we're going to continue on a series we started off a few weeks ago. And next week, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up. And then we're going to be relaunching back in Exodus and finishing off Exodus just to kind of let you know where we're going here. Let's recap what we talked about the week before that, though, okay? So the whole idea behind this series is, is I'm... What I'm hoping, and, and I want to say thank you to people who have been giving me some feedback in regards to emails and just some comments as well, too. But it's looking at, at forgiveness, but in a different way. And by a different way, what I mean is, is I'm trying to, as much as possible, show you that forgiveness, as we've talked about it as Christians, has been seen as a supernatural event. And it is. I don't want to discount that. But as I've said, that 
forgiveness is best understood as God understanding who we are biologically, psychologically, and that forgiveness is key to that, uh, our, our well-being, our mental health well-being. Like, one of the things I think has been very interesting over the last couple of years is that, you know, we as a society has, have remembered that mental health is part of health. And just, again, to be clear, I think that's fantastic because I think we overlook that, we diminish it, we, we just think that, ah, you know, just uh, we, we don't have to kind of look at it too much. But really, mental health is important. And forgiveness, as I've been able to, as I've been studying it really kind of intensively, is in my opinion, and I think there's lots of data to kind of uh, back this up, is probably the strongest thing that you can do for your mental health. So last week, we looked at this idea of, of guilt and shame, and we looked at this idea of, of what the next step, uh, uh, step two was, right? So remember I said to you, in culture, guilt is, I have done a bad thing. Now, again, nothing wrong with that, but there might be, it might be a bit of a, um, a, a, bit of a mistake looking at it that way. Because remember we talked about how one of the reasons why culture doesn't forgive, and we looked at that the week before, the reason culture and society doesn't forgive is because you are the sum of what you do. So it doesn't matter whether you did something today, yesterday, or 10 years ago. If someone can find proof of a mistake, well, that mistake is who you are because our identities are based upon what we are. But as Christ followers, we realize we actually have a different way of looking at it. And the second thing we look at is this idea of shame. Culture looks at shame as I am a bad thing, I am wrong. And the problem with the cultural understanding of guilt and shame is there is no redemption. Right? And this is really, I'm hoping you really hear me uh, in this, is that when we understand uh, forgiveness in a biblical uh, understanding, the biblical way of looking at forgiveness provides every person a path for redemption. So I, I kind of contrasted that with guilt and shame in the Bible. So guilt and shame in the Bible is breaking of God's kingdom rule. And this is really the path of discipleship. Because what we really strive for as a Christ follower, if we actually are Christ followers, not just cultural Christians, is that we are constantly being transformed in our thinking and in our behavior and in our beliefs, right? These areas of our lives are being conformed to the image of Jesus and, and, and the foundation of scripture. And so when we look at this idea of guilt, we have to really separate guilt from I've done a bad thing to guilt of breaking God's kingdom rule. And you know what's interesting is I was researching and, and I actually, um, I'm kind of old school. I, 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 write out, uh, I write out my notes because I, I don't know why I just, I like that tactile part of it. Oh, actually, I've, I'm actually new school now because I actually have a digital writing pad. So I'm writing, but it's actually on a digital, Anyways, I thought that was kind of cool. So the idea is, is that one of the things I used to think about is that when I was growing up, I, came, I come from a Pentecostal background, which many of you know. But the Pentecostal movement uh, stems out of what's called the holiness movement. And the holiness movement came out of the late 18th century, early 19th century. And the holiness movement was all about the externals, right? So one of the things that's interesting is that growing up, I wore suits to church. Morning and evening. We went to church in the morning and the evening. So, some, you know, just to be clear, we were hardcore. And a Pentecostal evening service was usually about four to five hours. So you got nothing on me, all right, just to be clear, right? So I'd wear a suit. And I remember one day I was feeling especially rebellious, and I wore dark-colored jeans. And I didn't let my mom see what I was wearing. 
So I remember, like, so we, like, my mom would herd us into our station wagon. It was basically like a clown car, right? Because there were six, you know, siblings, my five sisters and me, and then my, my mom and dad. So there'd be, like, eight, uh, eight of us in the car going to church. And so my sister Rebecca and I were the two youngest. We'd be in the back of the station wagon. I know, this is, this is more information than you need, but it, it's good for the story. So my dad would open up the flap, and we'd scurry all in, right? But I was wearing dark-colored jeans, so I thought I could get away with it. And so I scurried in for mom could see. My mom was sitting in the, in the seat there. And my mom would be sitting with a scowl because we're all late, right? Just so you know where I get my, I hate being late, right? Being on time is late in my mind because of my mother. Um, and so I scurried in the back with my sister Rebecca. And Rebecca looked at me because she's wearing a dress. She looked at me like, oh. And she points. I'm like, I'm like, just don't say anything, right? So we get to church and we're all piling out. And there I walk out, and my mom and I lock eyes. And I knew I was going to hell at that moment right there. Because my mom saw that I was wearing dark-colored jeans. And she's like, she doesn't have to say anything. You know how mothers do this, right? They just have a look about their face, right? And, uh, and she looked at me, and I just knew that if Jesus returned in the rapture right now, I would not go to heaven because I was wearing jeans. Now, the reason I say that to you is because I was told that this is how we need to present ourselves to God. Now, this is not a biblical case for it. Right? This is not a biblical case. Now, only reason I'm, I'm taking way too long in that story is because oftentimes we can feel guilty, but not because we've actually broken anything of what of, of God's law is. We can feel guilty because of how culture will impose upon us. And cultures can be a whole bunch of different ones. Right? It could be culture at large. It could be our external uh, small community culture, whatever. Right? And so we have to always distinguish. When we feel guilt... Right? We have to make sure that we are, we are imposing that guilt upon how God would ask us to live our lives. And the idea of shame. I was fully uh, coming into the sermon uh, prep for last week, uh, coming to say to you that shame is wrong. And the Bible doesn't talk about shame. Well, the problem is the Bible uses the word shame at least 168 times. So if the Bible uses shame 168 times, we have to first then step back and go, okay, how do I understand shame and how does the Bible understand shame? And what shame, as, as the Bible uses it, is shame is the awareness of broken relationship. And I showed you the examples, just a few examples from the Old and the New Testament, is that whenever the person feels shame, whenever the person has that, what God is trying to do is bring awareness to you that something is askew of your relationship. Now, what I wanted to show you as well then is that then we have to say to ourselves is, again, from a cultural and a biblical point of view, right? So if we say to ourselves, um, I feel ashamed, I feel shame, the first question we have to ask is, is your relationship to God healthy? Right? Now, when I say healthy, because somebody did email me this, and that's why I always want to respond, I don't, I'm not looking for perfection. Right? Like if, if five minutes before you asked this question, you stole a cookie from the cookie jar. Right? This is, this, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay? Really, when we look at this idea of health, right, we have to look at it like we would look at our own biological health. Right? Just because you had one bad meal does not mean you are unhealthy. If you have 20 bad meals, you're probably going to be unhealthy. You see the idea behind it, right? It's, it's progressive. It's not just simply one instantaneous act. So if we say to ourselves, I feel ashamed, the first question we need to ask is, is your relationship to God healthy? If not, repent. Now remember, shame is a relational word. It's always used in relationship. So if it's not healthy, if your relationship with God is not healthy, if there's an awareness of a discomfort that you're feeling spiritually, then return. Right? Because what is relationship? If relationship is broken, then you return back to the relationship. If yes, if your relationship to God is healthy, 
right, then you need to examine the source. We'll walk through that a little bit as well too, right? And again, if it's, if, if it's healthy and you say, yeah, you know what, it's healthy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in my spiritual disciplines. And again, it doesn't have to be every day. It doesn't have to, I'm just in, in general, okay? In general. And if it is, then what we need to do is we have to remind ourselves what the Bible says about shame and, and how we need to understand forgiveness. The second part, I feel guilt or I feel guilty. Have you committed an objective sin? This is really important, right? And this is where I think as Christians, especially as Western Christianity, we rely way too much on emotions, right? God loves me. He doesn't love me. God loves me. He doesn't love me, right? You know, and, and again, um, <laughs> as a recovering Pentecostal, we live that, right? Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I gave my heart to Jesus because I was told by the speaker, whether my youth pastor or the pastor, that I was going to hell. doesn't matter what was happening, right? And just to be clear, an eight-year-old, I can get into some trouble, but it's not that bad, right? It's, it's, it's not hell-worthy. But every time I heard a sermon, I was, I was certain that the fires were, of hell were, were licking at my backside, right? Uh, and, you know, we're all friends here, right? Don't tweet that. Um, but I always felt that I was guilty, and 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 and, and not to be uh, not to put too light of a spin on it, but that's actually haunted. That still haunts me even today. You know, fun fact, not for me, but every time I get up to preach, I don't feel I don't feel worthy of preaching. I know, is that weird? I'm a pastor. I'm a I'm a 50 year old male. I know I look good for my age, but I'm a 50 year old male, right? See, this is the stuff you don't get on video. I'm not, I'm not as funny on video as I am in person. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm just, it's, I don't know if it's Brock or Ken. I don't know. I don't know. Man. I just, it's the wrong audience. Maybe I just need to import a couple of you at my house. But um, I, I do, I, I, I struggle with guilt. I do. I, I struggle with guilt because of the holiness background to me. I, I never quite feel uh, that I'm good enough to do what I do which sucks to be a pastor, just to be clear, right? So what's interesting is when we think of this idea of feeling guilt, the question I have been asking myself since I've been doing the series is, have I committed an objective sin? Or is that just that? Because what the enemy wants to do, and the enemy wants to do more than anything, is he wants to convince you that you are outside of God's reach, you're outside of God's love. And if he can do that, he's already won. If he can say to you that a single act, a single thought life, a single thing is something that could pull you out of God's grasp, well, he's already won. Because then we stop, right? We stop seeking God's mercy. We stop seeking God's grace, and we stop seeking his relationship, right? And so if I have committed an objective sin, then we ask, for, uh, we ask and we receive. Remember, we accept and receive forgiveness. That's step two. Right? If no, examine source, refresh mind and spirit on biblical forgiveness. So remember, we looked at this last week as well too. But the the enemy's plan, right? The enemy's plan is 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 nothing's new about it. But man, is it effective? There's three steps to the enemy's plan, right? The first one is to redirect doubt. And 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 the idea about doubt, simple. The Bible doesn't apply to you. The scriptures about forgiveness and God's love doesn't apply to your sin. And and as I've said. It's the habitual ones the enemy gets to us, right? It's the habitual ones because these are the ones that haunt us and break us. So the enemy can first say to you, well, these sins are no longer forgiven. Well, that's doubt. And the second thing the enemy wants to do, he wants to minimize God, right? Because what the enemy wants to say to you is that God will forgive you habitual sin five times, 20 times, right? He'll forgive you 30 times. But after that, He's, he's, just, he's just upset with you now. He's just angry with you. He's just, you're beyond his reach, right? And, and as soon as he gets you listening to that, 
Well, what, he, what has he done? He's minimized God. And the third part to it is he maximizes sin and you. And, and this is something I, you know, <laughs> I didn't mean to say it takes long in this recap, but uh, the reality is, is that you're not that amazing, right? You're not that special. You're not that significant. Your sin is not greater than God. And if it is, you need to go back to scriptures to see who your God really is, right? I love how the prophets would speak about God in the Old Testament. They didn't have the science of astronomy. They didn't have the science of, of, of knowing how the world worked. But what does one prophet say? That God holds all things in his hand. So you take the sum total of the universe, which again, it, it's almost impossible, you know, whether light years or, 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 or wormholes or however you want to look at it. It's impossible to traverse from one side to the other because it's, as far as we know, it's, it's, it's bigger than any computational number that we have. And that idea is held in God's hands. So if that's not your idea of God is, and of course, if your God is your reflection in the mirror, right? If your God is your own self-loathing because of what you've done, what you've experienced, what you've done to yourself, what you look at, whatever it might be, well, then of course that God's not going to forgive you because that God is you, right? And so what I need you to really understand is the enemy wants you to think that your God is too small to forgive your sins and that your sin is too big for your God. This is the trap he always does, and this is the trap he always has. And we wrapped up with this uh, verse from uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 19-20. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God, even if we feel guilty. God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. Like, like, you know, this is tattoo worthy, okay? This is, this, is, this is worthy for you to write down in your scripture, to underline somewhere, but this is something you have to always to bring yourselves back to. That even when I feel guilty, even when I feel unworthy, God is greater than that, right? God is greater than that. Okay, so that's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going we're gonna to look at step three. And step three, just so you know, is the hardest of all the steps, and you'll see why in a second. But before we get to that, we'll share an article I came across by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller, this is written in 2021, so I think it's, it's, it's pretty recent. Uh, the, uh, the title of the article is The Fading of Forgiveness. And so what Tim Keller does in his article, and it's a really long article, but it's a, a, a very well read, um, re well written, and I will, I'll post the link on Monday, so if you would like to look at it yourself. But a couple of things that uh, Tim Keller says in the article. First thing, our culture is losing the resources for forgiveness and reconciliation. Many would say this is a good thing, that forgiveness is a form of psychological unhealthy self-loathing, and that it is also a way that oppresses, oppressors maintain their power over victims. And a lot of the language today in culture is about this, right? A lot of the language in culture is about power and power imbalance. And just, I think that that's actually a really healthy thing to talk about. Because sometimes there's, there's power structures that have been in place for too long. And you say to yourself, we should probably rethink this, you know, and say to ourselves, is this the best way that we as a culture, as a society operate? And I think as churches, <laughs> it's actually a really good thing to, to look at all the time as well, too. Like, is there imbalances in regards to the voices at the table, to the people giving input? Like, is it just the same people always doing the same thing, right? So this, this, this question of, like, you know, oppressor and victim, that's, that's a great question. But the problem is, if this is always a framework by which we look at this idea of, of culture, well, you're not going to really have a powerful uh, uh, narrative on forgiveness. He goes on to say this. 
As I've already noted, the main way Christians can be a resource to the broader culture is by restoring the church to being a well-known community of forgiveness and reconciliation. It may be in the practices of forgiveness that we can best see the truth of Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's statement. Our community with one another in Christ consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. Christian brotherhood is a spiritual and not a human reality. In this, it differs from all other communities. What I think is interesting is that historically, and I've hopefully I've tried to show this even with other world religions, what set Christianity aside from, from culture and other world religions was forgiveness. This is what was known of us. So I'm going to say what I'm about to say here very carefully. <laughs> and my daughter's toes just curled up because she knows I can always say things that are be taken the wrong way. Um, if we want to protest as Christians, how about we walk down a street with signs that say, I forgive you and love you. That's it. Right? To whomever. To whatever. I forgive you and love you. See, that was a hallmark of the Christian ethos. Right? It wasn't about how wrong others were, because people are always wrong. And you'll see why in a second that that doesn't actually play into it. But maybe a Christian a way of, of responding to what is going on in the world is, is I forgive you. It's I forgive you. Because this is what we were known for, and this is what set us apart. But it's in the last, I don't know, you, you get to pick uh, five years, ten years, I would say post-World War II, 1950s. But this idea of forgiveness in Christianity has, has kind of really been pushed off to the side. Because forgiveness is a sign of weakness. Right? To forgive somebody is to let them off the hook, and that's weak. Right? And, and that's only weak if you, if you look at it from a cultural view, not from a biblical point of view. And finally, he, goes, he says this. We must never give up on each other or on the supernatural potential of Christian community. Jesus has brought incompatibles, right? Incompatibles together. No wonder we often fight. We must strive to hold ourselves accountable to practice forgiveness and reconciliation. Our mutual love for one another is how the world will see who Jesus is. I love that phrase, incompatible, right? Because we all know that phrase in, in regards to the world today, right? Um, you know, if you have a computer, no matter what your operating system is, if it crashes or you have the, you know, the pinwheel of rainbow or the blue screen of death or I didn't know what Linux, how that works, right? But anyways, however it works, right, it's incompatible. Whatever you're trying to do is incompatible. When your computer freezes up, something is incompatible, or somebody from India has control of your computer. One of the two, you know, something is incompatible, right? It's incompatible, right? What I love what, what, what Tim Keller says is when you look at a body of Christ, if you understand it properly, that we are all incompatible. Sitting in this room, sitting at home watching online, is a group of people who are incompatible. We disagree about so many different things. But yet somehow, as Christ followers, we are still able to have this community that is sticky. In other words, we stay together because there's something greater than our incompatibleness that binds us together. So what Tim Keller says here is that forgiveness is absolutely fading, but the tragedy is, and again, I always try to say this, and I hope I, I, hope I say it enough, um, is that I'm, I'm not so much concerned what happens in culture in the world because the Bible doesn't really apply to them. Right? Christ isn't their truth, so it doesn't apply to them. 
what breaks my heart more is Christ followers. Is when we fight amongst each other, when we are kind of gnashing teeth after teeth because that's what we are. And so we are living out the incompatibleness and we're living out the cultural view of it, not the Christ view of it. So something I said at the very beginning, and this is going to come into play with step three, is forgiveness involves three elements. Victim, a transgression, and a transgressor. Okay? So let's take a look at the third step here. So forgiveness is a process. Yes, you know, uh, if this was a bingo card, how many times have I said this one, right? But I need to understand that forgiveness is a process. Step one is understanding divine forgiveness. Remember, however we understand forgiveness, it first starts off with this idea that we are forgiven by a transcendent being, i.e. God, right? That's where forgiveness starts. Second step is accepting and receiving that forgiveness. We talked about that last week. Well, this morning, we're going to look at step three. And step three is being that forgiveness for others. So let me see if I can do this here. No, wait, that's not right. Uh, oh, hey, oh, look at that, everyone, huh? I got a new toy. I'm just going to sit here and stare at that for a little bit. Okay, so what I <laughs> need you to understand here is that uh, forgiveness is about being. Now, here's how I want to explain it. When we talk about forgiveness, forgiveness isn't a thing or an act or event. You get this? See, when we talk about forgiveness, we make it external to ourselves. Something I do, right? No, 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 I forgive you, right? But the third step, you're going to need to understand something. How the Bible views forgiveness is actually an internalized reality. And this is, why this, is the this, this is why step three is the hardest of the, of the first two. It is a person. Yahweh says that forgiveness is core to his character. We've looked at that, right? Where, where, where God says about himself that he's not like other deities. He's not like other religions, right? And again, as I said to you, forgiveness is unique to Christianity. No other religion apart from Christianity furthers the psychological, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the interpersonal understanding of forgiveness than Christianity. Right? Jesus portrays that character in his mission. Right? So Jesus makes sure that the, the people hear that he and the Father are one and that the Father is, is, is forgiveness and that he will live that out in his mission. And we see that. Right? But the Holy Spirit brings about the need or the desire for forgiveness or repentance in our lives. Right? So when we look at this idea of forgiveness, it is very much a Trinitarian um, um, action. Right? But the, third, the second part of that, though, it is incumbent upon us, the disciples, to imitate and internalize this reality in our daily lives. So if I say to you that forgiveness is something you do, what's interesting is that you can disconnect it from who you are. But see, anything that's disconnected from who we are is not really based upon how God sees what we are. Okay? And I'll, and I'll kind of unpack, well... That's all I'm going to do this morning is unpack this, right? So let's go back to Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. I, I referenced this verse the first week, but now I want to come back and I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into it. So remember we looked at this uh, the very first week and it said this. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. So let's just pause here for a second because something uncomfortable is happening here. This is one of the verses. I'm going to show you quite a few other ones. Where the Bible makes forgiveness conditional. And this should make you uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable. Because what Jesus is saying here is something that perhaps we have not dove a little bit deeper on. Okay? 
the theme for this morning's teaching is this word, this, this phrase right here. We are both victim and victimizer. Okay? See, what can happen when we look at this idea of forgiveness is we always know people who have wronged us. But what we're not really good at is reminding ourselves that we have also wronged others as well. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, what he's really saying to us is that this is an acknowledgement of this. And so when we look at this idea of forgiveness, the importance of this verse is to move us away from our Western individualistic Christianity, right? Too often we see forgiveness as a me thing. I need forgiveness. And you do, and we do, right? But Jesus is showing this is only half the gospel. See, the good news of Christianity, if it's only for you and for you to get to heaven, then you are only living half of it. Because that's not how the Bible views it. If forgiveness is a uh, process, most people stop at the me. So let's take this verse we just looked at, and let's put it in the greater context of what Jesus is saying here. So let's look look at verses 12 to 15. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That sounds familiar, right? This is, remember, this is Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. The next part. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, the question we need to ask ourselves here, the question we're really as- saying to ourselves is, whoa, no, wait, ah! That doesn't even fit, though, does it? <laughs> All right, forget it. Um, it's fun, though, right? Um, the question is, it's in the middle of the verse. Take, take, just unpack this for a second here, okay? Unpack this verse for a second. Um, book ended in this verse, in these verses, is this idea of temptation. And we've always taken the word temptation as to be the temptations in our lives. And that's, that's not a wrong way to say it, but I would say to you that that's not the temptation that Jesus is talking about. Because again, whenever we look at the Bible, we don't want to take a verse out and say, okay, what does this verse mean? We want to put the verse back in the context of the verses around it because those verses are actually going to give us context. Now look, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, okay? That's the first part. Look at, this, look, look at the third part, right? But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you, Right? Nestle in between this is this phrase, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. You know, it's, 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 it's one of those moments where you have this kind of aha moment, when, especially for me when I study scripture. It's like, huh, I never thought about why this phrase is in the middle of these verses. Right? So what is the temptation that Jesus is trying to teach against? So, of course, um, I'm not smart enough to know the answer. So I looked at some commentaries. So let me show you what some of the commentators say. So D.A. Carson's commentary on Matthew says this. There is no forgiveness for those who, who does not forgive. That seems kind of awkward. How could it be otherwise? Their unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that they never have repented. Uh, uh, Louis A. Barbary says this. Uh, though God's forgiveness of sin is not based on one's forgiving others, a Christian forgiveness is based on realizing that he has uh, been forgiven. Personal fellowship is in view of these verses, not salvation from sin. One cannot walk in fellowship with God if he refuses to forgive others. And of course, my, one of my favorite commentaries, N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says this, 
There is, however, a condition which, remarkably enough, is brought right into prayer itself. We ourselves must be forgiving people. Jesus takes an extra moment afterwards to explain why. The heart that will not open to forgive others will remain closed when God's own forgiveness is offered. Jesus will say more about this in chapter 18, and we will too towards the end. So what's interesting here is what all the commentators that I've been able to kind of lean on this verse all struggle with this idea of like, wait, wait, forgiveness isn't conditional. But again, that is an oversimplification of what the Bible's saying. And again, I'm going to show you uh, more proof of this in, in, a, in a few minutes here. But what's interesting is, though, is what the commentators tend to say is we're not talking about forgiveness in the sense of salvific and this idea of like, oh, you're not forgiven. But what they are saying is that a heart that doesn't understand what God has forgiven in you and your inability to display that to others tells God that you really don't understand forgiveness. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting because I never thought of it that way. Right? So why don't we forgive? Right? Why don't we forgive others? So I just kind of wrote this down, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've missed a couple or 30. But uh, these are the ones that kind of came top to my, to my mind. Right? So the first reason I think we don't forgive is pride. Now, pride is this, is this thing that says to us that the person who has wronged me should come to me and seek forgiveness. Right? And again, makes sense. Somebody has wronged me, they should ask for my forgiveness. Right? And if they don't, they're going to burn it out. Right? Like, like that, there's a sense of pride with this idea of forgiveness. You laugh, that's actually true. That's how we think. Right? Pride stops us from asking for forgiveness or forgiving others. Self-righteousness. I'm the one that's wronged. Why do I have to forgive? Right? Vengeance. I don't want their forgiveness. I want God to smite them. Right? Balding, acne, right? Trick knee. I don't know. Whatever, right? Um, like, like we, we want some form of punishment. Right? We, we, want, we want vengeance. Scorekeeping. Right? I've forgiven this person because of the things they've said, the jokes they've made, the thing, whatever, but that's it. I've been keeping score, and therefore, now I'm at the, uh, that's it. That's all I got. Right? And, the, and the last one, I think is especially true of culture today, is victimhood. I prefer to be the victim, therefore, um, I don't need to ask or seek forgiveness. Right? So victimhood. So I, I wrote these ones down, but again, I think many of you could think of other ones in, in your own life. You could say, well, no, that, actually, I see it a different way. Um, just rem remembering uh, this quote from Kristen Weir, who was uh, in our first week, she says this, One common but mistaken belief is that forgiveness means letting the person who hurt you off the hook. Yet forgiveness is not the same as justice, nor does it require reconciliation. Uh, I came across this article by a, a, a psychotherapist named Nick Wingall, and he wrote this article, and I'm just going to share it with you because, again, everything that I say about this, I was going to say about this, it's, it's actually in this article, so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, but I'm going to give him credit for it because I don't plagiarize other people like some pastors. Um, this, the article was called The Psychology of Forgiveness by Nick Wingall. Yeah, I'm not, not stealing it from him, right? The first thing he says about forgiveness is forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Now, this is really important. This is what he says. If your bar for achieving forgiveness is elimination from memory, you're setting yourself up for chronic frustration and even guilt since it's simply not biologically or psychologically possible. While we can't control what memories stick with us, we can control our attention. So let me just unpack that for a second because this is really important. When we think of how the brain works, right, the brain works by creating neural pathways. 
right? And, and, and just, again, neural pathways, just the, a simple way of thinking about it is like a path in a forest, right? So um, if you go for a walk in a forest, um, you will take a path that there's somebody else has gone before you, right? You don't just go, oh, look, brushes, and I'm just going to walk through that, right? With a machete hacking it off and the police come by, right? We don't do that. We, go, we, we walk through a path. Well, our brain works that way, too. The, 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 the more we walk through a path, well, the, the easier the path is to walk through. And the easier the path is to walk through, the easier it is to access memories. So what Nick Wingall is saying is kind of actually important, is that if many of you think that, uh, you know that phrase, forgive and forget? Well, that's a lie. Because you can never forget. But what you can do is stop giving attention to it. And I, again, I, I would liken it unto, um, you know, a scab. You know, um, Hopefully this won't be too gross, but you know, as as kids, I you know we love I love you know picking a scab, but if you pick it too early, it starts bleeding again, and it doesn't really heal, right? So when we think about this idea of forgiveness, it's like picking a scab, right? If you do it too early, it bleeds again, has to scab up again, and heal, but if you do it after a l it's been there for a long period of time, it just it peels right off. It's like it's gone, right? Again, gross, I know, but what Nick Wingall is saying is that you will never forget the hurt that's been done to you. And if you think that you will, you won't. However, if you stop giving attention to it, you allow the weeds in your brain to grow on the path, the neural pathway, the, the emotional sting that you associated with it will lessen. Okay? Second thing he says, um, forgiveness and anger don't mix well. Right? So that's kind of a no-duh moment, but let me kind of tell you what he says about it. Um, in the long run, unchecked anger often leads to unhelpful amounts of mental elaboration over wrongs done to you, which keeps those memories strong and readily accessible to your mind. Validate your anger, but don't feed it. So, as I said this, I used a phrase last week, but I want to kind of repeat it again. I'm not asking you to be a spiritual sociopath. Oh yeah, someone hurt me. Didn't hurt at all. I'm okay. I'm going to keep going on. That's not, that, that's not healthy in any stretch of imagination. Right? But what is interesting is that anger, the emotional connection with that hurt, is like rocket fuel to remembering that hurt. But again, going back to Nick Wingle's uh, point one, you won't forget it, but if you stop accessing it, you will actually lessen it. Let me give you an example from my own life. Um, in 2018, I had a really rough year in ministry. So much so that I actually for the first time in almost 20 plus years of misery, I wanted to quit. I was like, I was just, I was at my end. It was like, you know what? Stuff this. Uh, and and I, I got that, like, I'm done, right? I, I, obviously, I'm here, I'm not. But it was, it was a really tough year. And what happened was, there was just people that were attacking me. I know, I'm delightful. Why would they, right? Um, but it was, the, it was the case. And UCC and, and what we were, it was, it was a kind of a tumultuous time. For those of you who are part of it, you'll remember. For those of you who aren't part of it, don't be gossipy and ask why. Um, no, you can't. I don't care. What I found happening in my own mind, though, is, so I lost a lot of sleep. I was actually, uh, I wasn't diagnosed with depression, but I was going through depression because I know the signs of it. And I was actually on a, I was close to a mental break. Like, I, I could tell the warning signs, not eating, not sleeping, like I couldn't sleep because I couldn't shut my brain off. 
So I actually remembered some of my, psycho my psychology training, and there's a form of psychology called CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I talked about that last week. And cognitive behavioral therapy is fantastic because what, what cognitive behavioral therapy does is it, it arrests the triggers for these, these memories and helps you reroute them. So what worked for me was is that I stopped giving attention to it. So what I literally did, and I know this is sound kind of weird, but whenever I started remembering the people that hurt me, I would say something out loud to distract myself from thinking about it. Right? And my distraction was prayer or singing worship song, which was weird when I was in the mall or something. But uh, uh, what I was trying to do is I was trying to disconnect the emotional content of the memory, I mean, treading down those paths, I was trying to allow my neural pathways to grow over so that I could, I could disconnect the emotional hurt that I felt from the event itself. And it took, I would say, about a year and a half for that to take place. Now, the reason I'm saying that to you is because what, what happens to our memories about the things that have wronged us is the anger we associate with it, the emotional turmoil we associate with it. But the thing is, though, is you can, you, can, you, can, you can redirect your emotions, but you can never get rid of the memory. And so now I'm happy to say that 2018 was a long time ago, and I can still tell you, but the emotional connection isn't, and, and, and my mind doesn't even go back over those events anymore. Why? Because I've retrained my thinking to kind of disconnect from that. Now, the reason I say that to you is because you have to understand, when we are hurt, are wronged, are harmed by others, it's deeply personal. Not I'm not telling you to be a sociopath. But what I am saying to you is that over time and over practice, you can disconnect the emotional trauma from the actual event. Therefore, you can you know, unhook yourself from the past memory. So this is kind of important. Uh, another one he says this is, forgiveness does not mean endorsement. Acceptance means acknowledging that you don't have power over or control over the past. Choosing to let go of the desire to control the past is key to taking control over the future. I don't know how many of you go through this, but you know, I have to say I, that I would I kind of partake about this a little bit is revenge fantasies. You know, if some if someone does something to you, don't you think to yourself, "Oh, this is what I should have said at that moment," right? I I actually more think about it with jokes that I missed. You know, like, oh, I could have said that would have been really funny or inappropriate. But it would have been great, right? Uh, like, I, I, it's more about jokes. But really, a lot of us can think of past trauma, and we think to ourselves, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have told the person trying to victimize me. Nah. Right? But what happens is we, we tend to freeze up or we tend to just whatever takes place. And so we think back on that and we go, why didn't I say this? Or why didn't I say to the person, this is not acceptable behavior. You can't treat me this way. We don't. We wish we would, right? So what he's saying here, and this is kind of important, is that when you forgive somebody, you're not saying that what they did to you is okay. Right? And this is, again, kind of key. Okay, let me go on. Uh, forgiveness does not require reconciliation. This is actually also important too. The problem with making forgiveness contingent on reconciliation is that other people aren't under your control. No matter how much you want the person who wrong, who's wronged you to see the error of their ways, offer a heartfelt apology and restitution, and mend the relationship, you can't control that. So no matter what has happened to you, the people who have done it to you may not think they've done anything wrong. 
and they will never ask for your forgiveness. And I would say this to you as well, and I apply this to myself. I don't expect you to be in relationship with those people. If there's been a clear wrong and there's a clear abusive or traumatic or just whatever toxic words you want to apply to the relationship, I don't expect you to stay in relation with those people. That's not good for you. It's not. And so not being in a relationship or just saying, you know what? We're going to take a time out. That time out might be till eternity, but it's still a time out. Now, if the person comes to you and asks for a reconciliation, and that's a whole different conversation, or you can say to the person, I forgive you. Now, some wisdom would dictate, and if you, can't, if you don't know the situation, speak to somebody who knows who might be a little bit wiser in this. But you saying to someone, I forgive you for what you did to me can just make them even more angry, more abusive. So it may not be something you actually will say to them, but it's something you say in your spirit to them. Right? So you need to understand that I don't expect people to be in in relationship. Okay, we're almost done with Nick's article because we still have to we still have to go through what Jesus is as well. Okay. Uh, and of course, Nick ripped this off for me. I'm not going to sue him, however, but he says exactly what I've been saying. A firm decision and commitment to forgive is an important first step, but be realistic about the fact that it's just that a first step. There will likely be many more steps along the road to forgiveness. One decision to forgive is not enough. Be prepared to continue to forgive day in and day out. And while it may get easier with time, I love this phrase. I like to steal this from him. Forgiveness is forever. I don't know what to say to you. I, 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 I can't make this a quick fix. Um, you'll see this slide in a second, but the deeper the hurt, the longer the journey. And for some of you, it just might be the lifetime. There are people in our lives who have hurt us in deep and profound ways. I have spoken with people who have had things done to them by those who are in power, who are in trusting relationships. And I don't want to speak too much more into that, but just simply that, that just what is done to them was so utterly wrong. And for me as a pastor, for me as somebody with a psychology background to say to them, oh, just for, forgive and forget is profoundly disrespectful to what took place in their lives. Profoundly. But the journey of forgiveness has to start at some point in time, or else that individual will always be chained to that event. Okay? So you, need, you just need to understand that it's not a one-time decision. It's a process. Forgiveness is forever, as Nick says it, which I wish I would have thought of, but no, I didn't. It's, it's, it, it is a process, and that process may take the rest of your life. Almost done here. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Many people struggle with forgiveness because they confuse the act of forgiveness with their expected emotional outcome. Specifically, most people who are struggling to forgive desperately want to feel better. People do tend to feel better as a result of forgiveness, but it's a mistake to expect certain sets of feelings. So one of the things I said about Christianity, Western Christianity especially, is we're too emotionally based. Right? So it, she, if, if I was going to emotionally manipulate you, I'd ask uh, Joycelyn to come back on the piano and play the entire vibe in the background, you know, just as I am, or something in the background, right? Let's just have like, you know, you know like a soundtrack, an emotional soundtrack, right? The reason we don't do that is because, A, you're too smart for the emotional manipulation, and B, I, just, I, I, I played that game way too early in my ministry career, and I don't do it anymore, <laughs> right? 
I did do that one time, you know, I am Pentecostal. Um, but simply put, is that what you have to understand is that Western Christianity has been too emotionally based. And I think that that's, that really doesn't do well to change people's behavior and thinking. Now, again, we don't want to be spiritual sociopaths, but we have to understand that forgiveness, you know, I, when I started forgiving people who have hurt me, I didn't feel better. You know, don't you wish that as soon as you say, I forgive that person instantaneously, that, that cloud that is amongst you or that, that feeling that, that just, uh, that's inside of you just goes away? Wouldn't that be amazing if you had spiritual Prozac happen that way? It doesn't work that way. And if your expectation is that it will, it may stop you from forgiving or fully experiencing forgiveness. Um, this is the last one for Nick. Uh, your road to forgiveness is your own. Cultiva cultivate the habit of looking beyond and beneath your most obvious emotions and notice smaller, quieter ones. These are emotions that are just as valid as your anger, for example, but they may be more helpful. So what he's saying is the, the more explosive emotions are what comes to the top. But what he's saying here is that in the midst of this, you can actually see some other quieter, subtler ones. Like in times of, of hurt, there are lessons to be learned. Maybe the lessons are who not to trust or what situations not to place yourself in or wisdom that you lacked that you just need to learn. But these quieter ones can help us actually to learn and to kind of grow in this. If you can allow yourself to feel the sadness, regret, and pity for what happened, for example, you might be able to see the offender and the offense in a, in a new light. Okay, that's it for Nick, but remember the statement here? The deeper the hurt, the longer the forgiveness journey. Okay, just to be clear about that, right? Because this is really important. Uh, your forgiveness of, of whatever has taken place, depending on how deeply it hurt you, how deeply it scarred you, it's going to take time. And you have, to, you have to allow for that journey. And again, for some of you, for, for certain things, that journey may take the rest of your life. For me, it was like a year and a half. For you, it, it could be less or it could be more, but there is no timeline. So don't, don't hear me say there's a timeline. Um, the Bible sees forgiveness not as something you get, but something that you live. Remember I said to you, it's not about something you do, but it's something who you are. One without the other is incomplete process and shows our lack of understanding. So remember I said to you, I'm going to show you some scripture here. So the Bible consistently comes back to this time and time again. Again, it's not a quid pro quo, not a uh, if and, it's, but it's more about this idea that if you truly understand forgiveness, then what you really will m live out is not just receiving it for yourself, but it's also exemplifying it for others. And this is why as Christ followers, as authentic Christ followers, this has to be part of what we are and who we are, right? Like Ephesians 4.32, right? Forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Luke chapter 6, verse 37, forgive others and you will be forgiven. Colossians 3.13, forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Mark chapter 11, verse 25, but when you're praying first, forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Mark 18, 35, that's why my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11, since God loved us so much that we surely ought to love each other. 
So what, what we see here, the kind of the three things that come out of this verse for me, is that first of all, forgiveness is reciprocity. Reciprocity is a great word. It's fun to say, uh, but it's also a word that talks about mutual, you know, give and take. Right? Again, not one-sided give and take. So what the Bible tells us is forgiveness is reciprocity. The second thing it tells us, forgiveness shows our humility and trust in God. See, one of the reasons why perhaps we don't forgive, I probably should have put this at the other part there, is because we don't believe that God will deal with it properly. See, we think that if we forgive somebody, God's going to let them off the hook and they're going to get away with it. See, what you have to remember is you can't control the outcome. And what you're really saying to God is, I don't trust you to deal with the situation. Instead, I'm going to scorekeep, and someday in the future, I'm going to have my revenge. Right? How many of you have a thought about this? Like, oh, the person who hurt me is going to come back to me in the future, and I'm going to go, ha ha! No way am I going to help you. No way am I going to, ah! Right? Like, we, we, we do this to ourselves, right? Can't just be me, because I feel really vulnerable right now. But we all think of this in the future, that if someone who's hurt us in the past wants to come to us in the future, we want to think of a way or something to say to them, to say to them, no, stuff you. That's the Sunday morning biblical way of saying, you know, whatever we're thinking in our head, right? Um, stuff you. Um, we, we, just, we just want to take our vengeance on these people. Right? But again, if you look at how the Bible looks at this, forgiveness is our humility. First, humility realizing that I am both victim and victimizer. That yes, I've been hurt by somebody, but if I'm really honest and truthful with myself, that I have also hurt people. Right? Victim and victimizer. And, fi and finally, forgiveness unchains us from our past. Remember what Nick Wingo was saying about the, all the emotional stuff around the event? If you have emotions around that event that have constantly come back to you, if you think about it on a daily basis, you're chained to that event and you will not progress as a human being, but also as a disciple of Jesus. Right? So let me give you the process I think you need to forgive others. Because I've been trying to make this series as practical as I possibly can. Because I don't want to just say, forgiveness is this, right? I just, I just want to say to you, listen, here's how you can do it. Okay, and modify these as you see fit, but I just I just want to give you practical ways of doing it, right? So the first thing you need to do is you need to identify who you still hold grudges against, and that should be pretty easy for all of us because we think about them on every day. It's a, it's the emotional scabs we pick every day. So even in your mind right now, think of the person who has wronged you right now. Okay, you, that's the first step. Way to go! You identified the person now. If we're being honest with ourselves, it's not just one person, right? There's a list. We have a list, right? So you can, you can have that list in your mind as well, too. The second part is search your own life for your part in this relational breakdown. Not, there may not be any. But again, if I am both victim and victimizer, then I have also played a part in, the, in this breakdown as well. So remember the humility piece of it? That's me owning it. Third. Confess your unforgiveness to this individual, to God. Right? Because, again, remember I said to you, you have to use wisdom in this, but you can confess it to the other. And honestly, if you have wronged somebody, then the best thing you can do is ask that person for their forgiveness. Because you may not realize it, but you might unchain that person as well. Right? But if you don't feel safe in that, if you don't feel safe in that, in that context, then, then start off with God. Right, because that's the safe way to start off with, and God, by His Holy Spirit, may may give you the courage or the strength in some later date 
But first, start off with that. Pray God's presence on this individual. Now, here's what's interesting, right? We pray, we pray prayers of vengeance. We pray prayers of, God, I just want you to make sure that person knows what they've done. <clears throat> However, maybe what we need to say is, Lord, that person may just need more of you. So Holy Spirit, speak to them and, and reveal yourself to them. See, we change the language, we change the intent. Because honestly, we all need to pray God's presence more in everybody else's life. I need you to pray God's presence in my life. Sweet, merciful do I ever. But you need me to pray that in your life as well too. So what better the person who has hurt us and wronged us? Because maybe what they need more of, maybe they're not a Christ follower, so that's maybe the first step. But if they are a Christ follower, because those are the ones that hurt the most, right? It's our brothers and sisters who have knives. Right? Like, I, it's kind of a weird thing to say, right? But it's, it's, our, it's, our, it's our brothers and sisters in Jesus who hurt us worse than anybody else. It's those closest to us who have hurt us. That's the hurt that lasts. Right? If you're in a grocery store, and, or if you're driving and someone, you know, cuts you off or, or you know, gives you a hand gesture as they drive by or, or stuff you, whatever it is, Right? It's like, ah, whatever, that guy's a jerk or whatever. Ah, that girl's a jerk. Yeah, you know, I want equal opportunity jerkism in there, right? Um, that doesn't matter. See how much funnier I am? Anyways, that, that doesn't matter, right? That doesn't matter. It's those closest to us, those in places of positions of trust. That's the one that goes, oh. So we need to pray God's presence on them. And this part, you can't, you can't skip this part. And this this phrase we're gonna we're gonna really unpack next week as we wrap the series up. But we have to release the debt. We have to release the debt. And releasing the debt, again, just to be clear, is not a one time thing. Maybe we have to release the debt almost on a daily basis. And very part the very one at the bottom there, don't don't overlook that one. Repeat till the sting is gone. And by the sting, you know exactly what I'm talking about, the emotional baggage that is part of the event. Keep this process going until that emotional, and it's, it's it, like you could be doing this for four months and, and the emotional sting's still there. But in the fifth and then the sixth month, you may feel it lessen. There is something so wonderful, and I can confess this to you just as something I've been practicing in my own life as I'm going through the series. You just, you feel it. Like, like, like what's the one interesting thing about the Bible is it talks about this, this concept of sin. And again, spoiler alert, we're talking about this next week, but it's a weight and it's a debt. And there's a reason why these two phrases are used because these two phrases really fall into l alignment with what we are. So you have to repeat this until it's done. Um, I, I mentioned this phrase, and I said I was going to come back to it to kind of unpack what Peter's actually doing here. But in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 22, remember N.T. Wright says this is what he's talking about. Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times. No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70, 70 times seven. I literally had a youth pastor say the sermon that you should forgive somebody 490 times. And I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense because I, I, you know, I'm not great at math, but I know this one's right, right? You know, like, okay. <clears throat> and again, this is where our Gentileness interferes with the Bible, right? So Ray Stedman has a great commentary on this, and this is what Ray Stedman says. 
The rabbis taught that you only need to forgive someone three times at the most. The fourth time, you could do whatever you liked. They even taught that God did this based upon a misunderstanding of a text in the prophet Amos, in which Amos repeatedly uses the formula for three times, for three sins, yea, and for four times, and for four, right? Amos chapter one, verse three, but this phrase pops up through the book of Amos. God brings judgment upon such and such a city. Thus, they taught that God himself never forgave more than three times. So when Peter was coming to Jesus, he thought he was being magnanimous. Jesus, how often should I forgive someone? Three times, right? It's, you know, it's, it's twice, but, you know, again. Remember I said to you that the Jewish understanding of completeness was wrapped up in the number seven, right? So this is why Jesus takes Peter's seven as Peter was trying to kind of, you know, feel that, you know, he's, he's twice as holy as the rabbis. And Jesus is saying, no, no, it's 70 times seven. And what Jesus was trying to say, no, no, you forgive that person completely all the time, right? Because that's how it looks like. And again, we even see this, right? So look at verses 32 to 43. This is, again, in the same chapter, and Jesus kind of sums up what Peter was saying with a story. And remember, this story of uh, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Remember, the serv- this guy racks up a huge debt with a king, and the king one day says, you know what? I forgive you. Unmerciful servant's like, wow, that's amazing. But somebody owes him a small amount, and he, doesn't, he has that person thrown in his jail. Look, look, look what the king says. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgive you. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Now, the, it's interesting here the word he uses for torture. Not to belabor the point, I've already done that, but the word torture in the Greek is actually not just about like, you know, like somebody being whipped, but there's actually connotations of mental. It's, it's a psychological. And I think it's so interesting because the torture that we do to ourselves is in our unforgiveness. When we refuse to forgive other people, what we are doing is we are drinking poison hoping that they die. You've heard that phrase, right? It's actually pretty, it's pretty clever. Right Now, look at verse 35 as Jesus uh, uh, sums it up uh, in, in the same chapter. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters. Where? From your heart. Right? Only the heart can release that emotional piece of it. That is what is the anger, the hurt, the rage, the, just the, the, the injustice, that scab, that emotional scab we keep picking. Unless you release it, you will never have peace about it. Finally, Ray Sedman says this. That, says Jesus, is what we do when we refuse to forgive each other, even the most insulting and injurious offenses. No matter how bad it may appear to us, no matter how hurt we are by by what someone has done to us in comparison to what God has forgiven us, it's like comparing $20 to $10 million of debt. And these two events are occurring simultaneously in our lives, in immediate context, just as Jesus said. So this reality is, as we seek forgiveness every day, and we absolutely should, so too we must be doling out forgiveness to those around us. We are both victim and victimizer. And unless you hold these two realities in your mind equally, you will not forgive. You will not hold forgiveness at the core of who you are. Remember, forgiveness is not something you you do. 
Forgiveness is something that you are. And that is exemplified in Christ. It's exemplified with God the Father. It's exemplified through God the Spirit as well, too. Let me close. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, again, we, we reference this verse. But let me show you what Paul does here. It's kind of interesting, actually. Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. And we all go, yes. But now look at the next verse and what Paul says. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as, Christ through, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So how do we get rid of all this stuff? By remembering. God has forgiven the inexcusable in me, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. Therefore, I forgive the inexcusable in others. And I think, I think this is something the world has forgotten that Christians do. Because there's so much inexcusable stuff that's going on right now in this world. And so many people are being separated, severed, relationships are breaking down, not because of anything that's happening in the relationship, but what's going on in the world, right? How many times are you offended by what you see in social media or by people saying? 70 times seven? I don't know, I don't know whatever it is, but it's, it's a lot, right? Events going on around the world. And uh, honestly, your opinion, my opinion, who cares? Right? The most counter-cultural thing that we can possibly do is simply say, you know what, I forgive. Because I don't know you, I don't know where you're coming from, I don't know the hurt and the pain, I don't understand why you're taking the stance and this posture, I don't know. But I don't need to know because that's, I'm not judge and jury in your life. Because guess what, I am, I am the fellow prisoner in this situation, this scenario. I am the victimizer as well. I forgive the inexcusable in you because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. And when you have that posture, when you have that attitude, it's not a thing you, you do, but it's a person that you are. All of a sudden, there's this tremendous relief. I don't have to judge people. I don't have to be the jury of their, their mistakes because honestly, I don't want you to be the judge and jury of my life. I don't want any of you to be the judge and jury of my life because you are all too vicious. I don't want to be the judge and jury of your life because I don't have the time, and I'm also vicious. I am delighted to say to you that Christ, he's my advocate, he's my lawyer, he's my defense lawyer. The judge is God the Father, who in his holiness told us what is right and wrong. And my accuser? Well, the devil knows. And the accuser, I hate him because he knows it. My accuser accuses me of stuff I've done. And Jesus says, your honor, we plead guilty and I will pay the penalty. I have never heard of any lawyer saying I will serve the life sentence or the sentence of my, of my uh, client. Never have I ever heard that. But Christ has done that for us. So then how can we sit in the jury and look at somebody else and go, well, I've been forgiven, but they deserve it. We're just fooling ourselves. We're only living half the gospel. Step three is the hardest, I know. 
But without step three, step one and two don't mean anything. Without step three, step one and two only become narcissistic Christianity. Individualistic Christianity. Me Christianity. We've already got enough of that. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I just want to remind you that you can text in your questions. If you don't remember the questions, there's it's in the update, but it's also on the line as well too. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, we do this every week. And again, I just want you to have a moment just to reflect and think. I understand that as I said this sermon series, as I've done this one this morning especially, I know that many of you in this room or at home, wherever you might be online, you have been suffering because of a hurt or a wrong that's been done to you. It has been an emotional scab. It has been an emotional scar on your life for years, perhaps. I don't want you to hear me this morning say to you that you should just forget it or just get over it. But I do want you to hear me say that God has provided a path by which you can be redeemed and be made whole again. And it's not simply sometimes things that have been done to us. Sometimes it's things we've done to ourselves. We are the victimizers of ourselves sometimes. And we say to ourselves, well, how good God. Again, just to remind you, how big is your God? So my prayer for all of you this morning, whether it's now or perhaps someone's watching this at a later date, is you stop thinking about forgiveness as something that you receive only, but you start thinking about forgiveness as something that you are. As you go out through your day, your posture isn't judgment. Your posture isn't jury or prosecution. But your posture is a victimizer who's been forgiven. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you first of all told us what is right and wrong because that's the first step to understanding what behaviors, what ways we act and treat each other are, are outside of what you want. And Lord, I thank you that even though you've, you've shown what the law is, you've shown us that Jesus, through who and what he is, can exemplify the absorption of our penalty and our debt, the weight that we all bear of our wrongs. He has absorbed that. He, is, he has been our Passover lamb, that death has passed over our lives and that we can feel redeemed and reconciled to our creator. But Lord, please, please, please do not let us stop there. Let us begin to live and exemplify that to others around us. Lord, the world needs Christians to remember that we are forgivers. We need to model that because we are so angry, we are so hurt, we are so, we're just looking to, to chew each other up with our anger. Oh, Holy Spirit, please remember, re please remind us that we desperately need to be forgiven as well as others need to be forgiven as well. We are both victim and victimizer. So in humility, Lord, we trust you with the outcome. And Lord, we don't know 
about the other people who we need to forgive. We don't know what's going to happen in their lives. But Lord, we know that we are going to exit the prison of our minds and bask ourselves in the light of your love, Lord Jesus. And over time, be healed and restored. And we will not allow the enemy to whisper, to chain us back in the darkness of, of past hurts, but instead we release ourselves through you, Lord Jesus, to be whole, to be healed, to be one with you once again. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to keep singing this morning. We're going to sing one more. Um, as we were singing earlier, singing New Wine, I felt just kind of stirring in my spirit that there are some of us here or online um, that maybe are feeling guilt and shame this morning for something we've done. Maybe we need to ask forgiveness or receive forgiveness. I know as we talk about this, it can bring up a lot of feelings in us. So as we sing this next song, we're going to sing What a Beautiful Name. Uh, the first chorus says, What a Beautiful Name It Is. The second is, What a Wonderful Name It Is. And the third is, What a Powerful Name It Is. I would encourage you this morning, if you're feeling that way, to just cry it out to God just to remember how beautiful, how wonderful, how powerful he is, and that nothing you can do can separate you from that. So let's stand and let's sing our last song together. You were the word at the beginning, one with God the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation Now revealed in you are Christ What a beautiful name it is What a beautiful name it is The name of Jesus Christ my King What a beautiful name it is Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. You didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great your love was greater what could separate us now what a wonderful name it is what a wonderful name it is the name of jesus christ my king what a wonderful name it is nothing compares to this what a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus.
So just one question that was texted in, so I just want to read it to you. Um, I feel as though my heart has been hardened in response to wrongdoings others have done to me. I have hardened myself to protect myself, and I'm afraid to soften myself to forgive. It feels unsafe. I built up walls for a reason. What should I do? It is exhausting to keep up those walls, but it's terrifying to let them, de- to let them fall. Uh, this question is amazing because I think this is many of us. So one of the responses we do in order to protect ourselves is we do create that hardness around us. But just remember, a hard outer shell does not actually protect us. What it does is actually it, it creates like an emotional rot in the inside. So the reason the walls, the hardness of the heart, and we talked about this, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, but is that this idea of hardening our hearts doesn't actually protect us because what happens is it, it actually keeps the hurt and the pain inside. It's like bouncing around these in, 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 these in, in, the, in the walls we build around us. And the terrifyingness, for sure. So the first step for the terrifyingness is, remember, I am not asking you to go to the person that has wronged you and ask, and ask them to, you know, for, to, for them to ask for your forgiveness. That is not what I have done through the series. I am saying you first must go to God and, and, and forgive them, right? That's your side of the equation. Remember, in, 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 in a wrong, remember, there's three parts to it, right? There's, there's two people, and there's a wrong that separates them, right? So to relieve that wrong, you must first play your part. Your part is, I release the debt. Now, remember, the third part of the person, they may never own that, but again, that's not your responsibility, right? Control is an illusion. And especially when it comes to reconciliation in regards to relational breakdowns. And so as I realize it's terrifying, I am not asking you to approach that person. I'm not asking you to be in relationship with that person. That is not what I'm saying. If the Lord would heal you and give you strength in the future, perhaps. But for now, the first step is releasing. And the wall part, Think of the wall rather than just this physical barrier as just space. Space is healthy. Space is, is, o- is okay, right? 
don't be in a relationship with a person that's going to hurt or harm you in any way, shape, or form. Right? Because if they won't play nicely, then you don't have to be in their playground. The good news is there are lots of other playgrounds. I don't know how that metaphor works, but you get the idea. So I understand what you're saying because I think hardening our hearts or, or just becoming emotionally cold is so tempting. But really what you're doing is you're hurting yourself and you're creating toxicity inside of you and you're not actually moving on and growing from that. So thanks for the question. That's a great question. Uh, again, just to recap, something that uh, Gabe had said at the beginning there just in regards to announcements. Um, young adults, you're back at the Who there tomorrow. So uh, someone said to me, you guys meet at Hooters? No, we don't have a Hooters in Waterloo. That's uh, such a weird thing to say. But uh, so at the Hooters Hotel there, so you're, at the, you're in the billiards room tomorrow, okay? So free nachos, yay, or, or something. But uh, uh, just spread the word again. We're, 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 we're back again. So young adults, tomorrow night at 7 p.m., you're at the Hooters. So uh, you're welcome to come back and uh, invite anybody else you'd like to be there. Um, of course, our retreat. I I'm actually happy to say that people are signing up for the retreat. So we, we have, I think, close to... 40, maybe 30, a little over 30 people who have said they're going to come on the retreat. One of the areas that we, you know, we could definitely use help. So there's three meals that we'll be cooking, two breakfasts and one lunch. Uh, the staff there are going to be catering the, the dinner and Subway. We'll be doing our lunch on the Sunday. <laughs> so uh, a couple of breakfasts and, uh, and a lunch. So if you have to help out with that, and if you've told me in the past you want to help out with that, please know that I don't remember. Um, <laughs> Because I, I, I know that I, lots of people have said, oh, I'd love to help cooking. I don't remember who you are. Uh, so please just let me know if you'd like to help out with a meal or through the cooking team. Uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that. That's bit, that'd be so helpful. And you know what? People have said to me, how do I pay for the retreat? Um, well, the best way to do is text to give. Uh, is, is option number three on text to give is the retreat. Um, or e-transfer. You can do that as well, too, the subject line retreat. Or you, you, you can throw cash at me. I take Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> the church doesn't, but uh, <laughs> I do. Uh, I don't even know what Bitcoin is. Anyway, so um, please note that uh, oh, oh, this year as well, too, young adults, we're not putting you in the forest in, in, in a cabin. You're going to be indoors because uh, we're, we're, we're booking both uh, McDonald Hall and The Nest. And so and there's actually, for those of you who are couples or uh, family, we have rooms with bathrooms attached to them. So you don't, like, we, like, this is great. So if you are, you know, if you're a couple and you want your own bathroom and all that, we can accommodate you, but you got to sign up. It's first come, first bathroom. Um, <laughs> for uh, the rest of you, we have lovely trees outside that are, uh, are available to you as well, too. So uh, please make sure that you sign up for the retreat. And if you signed up with giving me a piece of paper, it's most likely I've lost that piece of paper. So if you could sign up <laughs> online. It's been so long since we've been together. I couldn't even find the clipboard this morning to kind of do the four questions thing to it. So uh, sign up online. That just helps us keep in one area all the people for the food purchasing and all that. So uh, sign up online on our UCC website. Uh, you just click on the top for Renew 5 registration. That's just helpful. So if you could do that, that'd be great. Lots of fun. And if you can only come up for the Saturday or whatever, people can do that. We'd love to have you for that as well. And if you can't afford to come, we will pay for you. That's a, that's a hard and fast rule that we have at UCC. And for young adults, invite your friends if you want to, but just say you'll pay for them. You won't. I will. But you can look kind of cool saying so. But again, we'd love to have as many people as we can for this because this is going to be a great time for that. And speaking of paying for other people, for those of you who are continuing to support <laughs> UCC, thank you so much. We are, uh, again, um, every time somebody says to me, you know, Pastor, um, you know, we need help. Uh, just yesterday, you know, somebody asked for help, and the answer is always yes. It's because of you. 
because of your faithfulness and giving and, and your act of worship, we were able to do that. So thank you so much for that. Okay, let's pray and let's get out of here. So hopefully, uh, you know, we can, we can get out of here safely today. So we'll see about that as well too. Let's pray. All right. Dear Lord Jesus, I've had a lot of fun this morning. I don't know anybody else. But uh, Lord, it is so good to know that the God that we serve he doesn't keep score. I know I would keep score, but he doesn't. And Lord, that's the God of the Bible. It's not the God of my emotions. It's not the God of culture, but it's the God of Scripture. Lord, I thank you that you release us of the debt. You unlock the prisons of our minds, of our hearts, of our souls. And Lord, you want nothing more than for us to grow, to be transformed, and, and sometimes heal. Well, forgiveness is the key for that. I pray, Lord, that we would, after, especially today, that we would realize that forgiveness isn't an act that we do, but it's what we are. It's who we are as followers of Jesus. And I pray, God, that that would be manifested in our lives, in the world, and the world desperately needs what we have. We have just forgotten that we had it. So, Lord, help us to be forgiving. Help us to be loving and, and, and merciful to those who have wronged us, to those who have hurt us, and to those who are just mean. God, I thank you that you've given us this gift of forgiveness, and I pray, God, that we would handle it with care, but we'd remember every day to use it in our lives, Lord. Now, may the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't forget, if you have any questions or, or anything around prayer, I'll say at the front to speak with you. The rest of you, have a blessed week, and we'll see you uh, next Sunday. Take care.